Hi, Data people, and welcome to Data Femme, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. As we move into this holiday season, I have a lot of goodies for you, and today's is all about Rochelle March. Rochelle manages TrueCost, which is part of SMP Global, and I'm so happy to have her here to tell you about her path into data science and her passion for sustainability. Michelle, if you want to start by just giving me a little bit of background about how you came to New York and found data science and found finance, that would be great. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, so my route to where I am now is uh, a bit meandering. I never thought I would ever work in finance ever, <laughs> um, but uh, now it's it's a really good fit. Um and I actually studied landscape architecture in college. Uh, I was really fascinated by the natural world and design. Um, and I felt that I could do a good job uh, creating rooftop gardens all over New York City. I thought that that would increase the health outcomes and would be quite pleasant, uh, you know, provide more pollination for bees. Uh, and so I was really into kind of improving the environment in that way. I moved from Galveston, Texas to New York when I was 15. And Galveston, Texas is kind of a subtropical beach town. And New York City is obviously a concrete urban <laughs> jungle. Um, and I just felt a lot different physically, just from less sun and a different environment. And so I became really, really interested in this uh, feedback loop between people's health and, and their environments. So I wanted to improve that through landscape architecture. Um, and then actually my father passed away while I was in college. And that was a really tough uh, moment for me. And I tried to move forward and apply to grad school for landscape architecture, but my heart just really wasn't in it. And I needed to take some time really to grieve and just kind of uh, reorient kind of a, a new stage of my life uh, without my father, who I was extremely close with um, and uh, was a big, big person in my life, essentially. Um, so my aunts at the time <clears throat> suggested that I go for an adventure. <laughs> um, so I actually moved out to the West Coast and started in San Diego and basically made my way up to <laughs> Seattle and uh, lived there for a bit. And eventually came back to New York uh, for a guy, actually. I fell in love with a friend of mine who got a really good job as a, as a chef in New York. <clears throat> and uh, I followed him, essentially. Wow, juicy story. The things we do for love. But clearly you've mastered New York on your own by now. So how did things progress after that? At his restaurant, there was a lot of really cool people um, going and getting multi-course uh, fancy food and such 
and there was a music director guy and then his girlfriend and his girlfriend worked at a hospital um, and I kind of needed a job. I uh, didn't really have a plan. <laughs> um, I, you know, was still kind of sorting things out in my life and uh, didn't have a ton of uh, direction. And uh, but I had a couple things that I was interested in and thinking about, but I did need an actual job. And um, his girlfriend said, oh, well, you know, we're always hiring data managers at uh, the hospital. Um, and so, you know, if you can talk to doctors, then you should, uh, you should apply. And this was managing patient data for cancer clinical trials. Uh, also some lab work, uh, but predominantly kind of organizing patients to go through experimental drug therapies and track their progress and uh, coordinate with the doctors and that kind of thing. And uh, my dad had been a doctor, so I said, oh, I get it. <laughs> I know how doctors can be. <laughs> um, and so fortunately, I got the position, and this was a really different type of job for me. I actually hadn't really studied any science besides you know, physics and calc in high school, and then a little bit of horticulture in college. And uh, all of a sudden, too, I was surrounded by all of these pre-med and pre um, Masters of Public Health candidates, and everyone was super motivated and ambitious, and it was a really good environment for me, actually. Um, I realized I could go back to school, and I could try something different. Um, and uh, one cancer therapy I worked in a lot, and of course there was a lot of data. This was my first kind of real experience uh, towards working with a bunch of data and organizing it. So although it wasn't, you know, super advanced in terms of analytics, it taught me the principles of kind of organization and <laughs> how you need to get everything really, really clean and organized. And of course, we're dealing with cancer patients, so very sensitive data. Um, so that was kind of my first experience with that. And um, I worked in a particular type of cancer towards the end uh, called lymphoma. And it's a white blood cell cancer, and no one knows exactly how you get it. You can get it when you're 9 years old or 99. There's no concrete hereditary connection. Uh, it's kind of a bizarre disease. But I started reading about it, and uh, there was a lot of um, research about the connection of farmers and high rates of lymphoma, often because of pesticide exposure, for example. And so this kind of reinvigorated my original interest in how the environment can affect us, particularly in a health way. And I, more I researched about it and I talked to the oncologist about it, and I thought, you know, I kind of want to get more into this. Um, and I actually thought about medical school, but um, I felt that it may be more helpful to really go to the source of things, uh, the, the soil itself, the air itself, and help clean that up rather than treat uh, the disease. And to be honest, I didn't love working in a hospital environment, uh, and I'd always loved nature anyway. So I felt that um, some type of science or policy profession would be really interesting. Definitely. And even though you didn't stay in the medical space formally, it definitely teaches you a lot about sensitive data and how to work with it. And I also happen to know from stalking you on LinkedIn shamelessly 
that you did end up getting those graduate degrees. And I'm hoping that you can tell the audience a little bit more about that. Uh, so I pursued a Master of Science in Environmental Science and Policy, and then I also did an MBA. And I felt that I just needed to have financial literacy for anyone to take me seriously <laughs> in terms of environmental issues. And I essentially felt it, it couldn't hurt. Um, and additionally, at the time, uh, you know, I've always loved to draw and design things. So I had a small side business uh, making graphic design t-shirts and illustrations. And I really wanted to source organic cotton or use non-toxic inks, but it was super expensive uh, and quite difficult actually to do. So I was also interested in, in learning some tangible skills of how I could actually create a sustainable business or at least uh, become more aware about that. So I did that. And then in grad school, I um, did a number of different sustainability jobs to kind of build my resume since I didn't really have much of that experience. And my first one was for a nonprofit called the Natural Resources Defense Council, which specializes in using uh, legal uh, acumen and science to push through different policies. Uh, and they're a really excellent organization. And I focused on um, climate change impacts on public health. So this was a good segue from kind of, you know, hospital work to something that was public health related, but also had the climate component. Um, and so we looked a lot at, say, the adaptation plan after Superstorm Sandy hit New York, for example, also heat waves, different types of bacteria that now exist because temperatures are very high. Um, so different types of kind of public health impacts related to that. And that was really great. And then in, in my business school, I did a consultancy project uh, for a big company. Uh, and this company was Lockheed Martin, <laughs> which I never thought I would <laughs> do anything for. Um, for those who don't know, it's an aerospace and defense uh, company. It makes a lot of weapons, for example, and uh, um, airplanes for, for battle. And uh, But they also had a ton of... Um, infrastructure they made for renewable energy and sustainable fishing and they're really super efficient in their operations and all these different components and they really wanted to go on what's called socially responsible indexes and um, these are also called ESG indexes to a certain extent but essentially these are financial funds or indices that have certain criteria and most SRIs, or socially responsible indexes, uh, don't allow things like tobacco, alcohol, pornography, and weapons. <laughs> um, kind of like a negative screening technique to make sure you're not investing in things that you wouldn't want to be. Naturally. But it seems like it would be quite a challenge to sell weapons as something that you should be investing in. They really wanted to get into this market because SRIs or ESG indexes are one of the fastest growing indexes in the financial space, actually. Um, it's attracting a lot more investments. And I think uh, there's something like one in four dollars in the world is now invested in this type of investment. And it's consistently growing. 
we found a number of funds that would allow weapons, for example. The, the thing I'm most proud of is uh, at the time they were making a type of weapon called cluster uh, ammunition or munition. And this is a very inhumane weapon. Um, you know, the UN uh, treats this as like a, a inhumane weapon and, and you really shouldn't use it. Um, and so we said, you know, if you stop making these, then this really increases your chances for so many other funds. And they, they had actually been thinking about letting their contract expire. And when we recommended that they don't manufacture them anymore, they actually did let it expire. And so they no longer make those types of weapons. And so this taught me how impactful you could be working with these large multinational companies. Even if it's something really small, it's just not making a type of product anymore. Um, I saw the influence that these financial markets could have that were more values aligned, so to speak. Um, and so did a couple other, uh, cons you know, I worked in consulting for a while, working with different companies uh, after grad school. And there too, I would fashion different arguments to essentially persuade them to uh, take up my strategies or you know pursue a sustainability avenue, and uh, you know it'd be like comp competition, innovation, compliance, risk, etc. Uh, but the investor argument was always the most strong, and you know if the investors in a company want something to change, you know, they are, they are essentially funding that company's activities. So you listen to them, essentially. <laughs> I guess this is where finance bleeds over into every industry. How did you start learning how to think like an investor? Um, so this made me really interested in the space, uh, the financial space, as I was slowly starting to see this convergence more and more of one, the impacts of climate change on global economies, which was becoming more and more palpable and more and more um, meaningful to companies. And then two, how investors' values, uh, particularly younger investors that are starting to inherit a lot of wealth from their parents, uh, was influencing where that money was going and what companies would attract that money. Um, so I wanted to, to be in that space and, in, in, you know, learn more about it, but also, uh, kind of push along this trajectory of changing how we, we value companies essentially. So not just profit, profit, uh, and the maximization of profit, but also what, how are they treating their employees? How is the environment, you know, being sustained and cared for? And how are they really going to deliver value in a world and in a future that's just really different than the traditional economic model? So that, you know, uh, I was working in consulting and uh, doing a lot of technical work there. So back to the data, um, you know, I was being asked to do a lot of different uh, footprints and also build indexes that were quite complicated. And I was kind of the only one who, who had a, a leaning towards technical work at the firm. Uh, they were much more kind of strategy-oriented folks. And I thought that this was the future, you know, um, especially in the sustainability space, there's just a lot more data available. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, there wasn't really any data about carbon emissions or discharge of water. And today, there's just so much more. 
Um, and I was starting to see our clients really ask for a data-driven uh, strategy. And we started to get a lot more big tech company clients as well, or younger companies that only listen to data-driven strategies. They, they don't care how much experience the people had or how cool the strategy sounded. They said, well, well what, what does the data say? Um, and so more and more I got put on these projects and was um, kind of craving to be part of a, a bigger team that also knew how to do this type of work, but also for me to, to really refine my skills. And so I took a data science certification course mm -hmm. from General Assembly uh, which then introduced me to, you know, programming in Python and different machine learning models and um, how to really deal with complex data uh, and how to glean different insights. And I just, I just loved it. I think a lot of people who get into machine learning and data science, there's just something really fun and, I don't know, uh, interesting about it. And there's so much to learn. Um, so I really like that. And then afterwards, I pursued uh, a much more technical job at Standard & Poor's or S&P Global that was a perfect mm -hmm. juxtaposition between environmental and ecological analysis and economic analysis. Well, speaking of analysis, I remember your talk at Data Science Salon, and I'm hoping that you can fill the audience in and refresh my memory on how TrueCost fits into S&P's larger goals. So um, TrueCost used to be this small boutique firm that really started to make uh, inroads because they began gathering data, essentially, from different companies on you know, carbon footprinting, etc. And a key part of their intellectual property was a environmentally extended input-output model. Basically, the imports and exports from all the different sectors of the economy into other sectors. So if I'm an ag company, I'm going to have to buy a little bit from the petroleum company for fertilizer and a little bit from the utility companies for electricity, etc., in order to produce goods that I then can sell to other sectors. And through a number of different uh, calculations, you can then extend it towards environmental metrics. So for every dollar that I spend in the petroleum industry, that actually can equate to a certain amount of emissions. Um, for every dollar, there's going to be you know, a ton of CO2 emissions, carbon dioxide emissions. Well, that sounds like a lot of pressure to decide where to put your dollars. The obvious question is, how do you decide? So the beauty of this model is that it allows a really excellent way of proxying gaps in the data. Um, and at the time, there was really limited data available on this type of stuff. And the, the model could help fill the gaps. And then as more data became available and available, you could tweak the model and, and make sure it was refined, etc. So anyway, that's true cost, and um, they're also really big into natural capital valuation, which is essentially just trying to find a monetary equivalent for uh, trees and clean air and coral reefs and things like that. Um, you know, you can, if you 
analyze it, you know, a coral reef not only is beneficial economically for tourism, but the reef actually provides a buffer from storms. So it protects coastal development. It's a nursery for fish, so it's going to help fisheries and things like that. So there's a number of other economic benefits that you wouldn't normally think about, and Trucos is also kind of an expert in, in valuing those benefits. So you mentioned earlier how Lockheed Martin got into this whole way of investing. And I'm curious how S&P got involved and, you know, if it happened while you were there or before. So TrueCost for a while would help create the first uh, carbon efficient index, uh, which S&P owned. And then in late 2016, S&P decided to acquire TrueCost. And this was in part because uh, at the time, this ESG, environmental social governance, is kind of the term for the financial piece of sustainability, so to speak, um, started to become a lot more popular, basically. Um, all the major financial firms and banks started to create their own ESG divisions, um, and you know, more data was becoming available. Uh, and this was because of a number of reasons uh, that I mentioned previously, you know, climate change was becoming more real. Um, also, I think um, social media had increased the level of transparency. So reputational uh, benefits for companies was becoming more and more important. Uh, you could then take a picture of a company doing something, you know, not so great in its supply chain and, you know, everyone would know. So there was a need to kind of understand this type of risk more. And then, as I mentioned too, younger generations uh, are putting their money where their value values are more and don't want to invest in, say, fossil fuels or companies with child labor or, or things like that. Um, so right now, um, TrueCost is uh, part of S&P Global, and TrueCost still has a number of its original clients, which are companies and uh, financial institutions like pension funds and banks, and will do things like carbon footprinting, water footprinting, um, you know, gender wage gap analysis, kind of a number of services. But we also produce a lot of products and uh, in a way kind of serve as S&P's kind of research and development hub for ESG related components. Although, um, and so we work with a lot of the different parts within S&P that are developing this. So uh, ratings, S&P ratings is a, is a huge uh, part of S&P and we help to provide data and different methodological um, uh, frameworks for their ESG evaluation product that they just launched. And so this can provide an additional ratings of a company based on ESG factors. Uh, we still contribute a lot to different indexes, carbon efficient index. We did a carbon earnings at risk index, which is looking at how the different companies um, have exposure to carbon taxes and kind of choosing the ones that have less or are managing it well. Um, you know, we just aligned uh, GPIF, which is the world's largest pension fund. It's uh, out of Japan. It's almost, I think it's over a trillion dollars uh, pension fund. And they decided they wanted to make sure all of their investments had ESG um, or environmental social governance metrics. So True Cost, you know, works with them and, and provides the data and, and helps kind of um, make sense of that through different analytics. 
Well, that's quite the operation that you have built there. Um, and I had no idea how important sustainability really was getting in the finance sphere. So what are you coming up with these days? So today, you know, my job is kind of half helping different clients measure their impact, understand where they're going, uh, but then also half uh, producing different types of products that can be sold on a subscription basis or through a digital platform. Uh, and so companies can just run their own numbers in terms of their footprint or impact on the sustainable development goals or uh, climate change risk, things like that. It doesn't seem like you're really having to convince investors like your clients, your young, your younger clients, as you mentioned. It doesn't seem like you're really having to convince them too much of why um, sustainability in terms of the stocks they choose and the investments they're making. It doesn't seem like you have to convince them of the importance of that. But are you having any kind of um, like what is the word? It's like a, like a lashback or something. So I joined S&P a little over two years ago. And even in those two years, I've seen a incredible shift from not really knowing what ESG even stood for to everyone wanting to, to work in ESG and have an ESG product. And part of it, I think, is pure economics. Uh, it's a fast-growing area. It's new. Um, financial data, it, you know, at its core is relatively standard. So there are alternative data sets available, um, but it's hard to really glean value out of them uh, unless you, you really refine them. And ESG is kind of one of those alternative data sets that's now becoming much more refined and um, familiar to investors. And it's happening very, very quickly. Um, so yeah, when I first joined, I have folks really not know what I did at all. And now, you know, uh, my, you know, true cost in particular is, is playing kind of a core role towards S and P's greater strategy. And I, I think this is purely cause there's just money to be made in the space. Um, like I said, younger investors want to, want to invest their money in that way. Uh, older investors want to protect their assets. So um, there's this concept called stranded assets, where in a fund or in your investment portfolio, you might have a lot of investments in fossil fuel companies. And that's super common. They're very high return stocks. They do very well, generally. Uh, I mean, the fossil fuel industry is, you know, the largest industry in the world. And but um, we you know, literally could not burn the amount of assets that are listed on their balance sheets. And if we did, the world would just become in, inhabitable. So there's almost this idea of like a carbon bubble or a stranded asset element where you're getting all this financial return today on assets that can never actually be realized. So at some point, you know, they're going to be stranded assets. So Investors, particularly those that have really long-term portfolios like pension funds or uh, even institutional investors that own a little bit of everything across the world, like, like, a, like a BlackRock or something, um, they want to know how exposed they are to these stranded assets because those are assets they'll essentially have to reallocate somewhere else uh, at some point in time. Um, but there's also a reputational element. Um, you know, I think a lot of major pension funds and 
um, institutional investors feel pressure from their constituents to align the investments a little bit better. You know, more and more people are being impacted by climate. Uh, the news reminds us every day. Um, I mean, I guess it depends what news you watch, but um, that these, these are real impacts that we're feeling across the globe. So throughout this whole episode, you've pretty much convinced, I'm sure, a lot of large company employees listening that sustainable investing is the way to go. But let's say that people need a little more convincing. What are some final thoughts on why big companies should adopt this strategy? There's a lot of arguments. Uh, one is, you know, talent attraction. Younger employees who are smart and talented and have a lot to offer businesses don't necessarily want to work in companies that don't have a good value system that reflects their own. So companies that have a lot of sustainability things going on, you know, employees want to work for them. So that's very straightforward kind of um, good old competition is great. You know, Coca-Cola had a lot of really bad scandals around water, uh, particularly in factories in India. And the good thing is it stimulated one of the most robust water strategies ever in the corporate sector. So now they replenish all of the water that they take out of the ground back to its original source. And that's, you know, pr really progressive uh, compared to where a corporate uh, playing field was. And so they did that. So then PepsiCo was like, oh, well, we have to do something, you know. So uh, part of it is leading companies see this as a differentiator in talent attraction, but also for their investors. Sure, there's an upfront cost, but then you're not beholden to different types of energy contracts. You know, it's more secure in terms of where you can get your energy, how much that will cost. Um, so pure efficiency such. And so and then also, you know, uh, it's a very competitive landscape uh, with businesses. So, you know, their peers are doing it. You know, what are, what are we doing? And now there's actually a pretty big regulatory regime that's that's emerging, where a lot of stock in, uh, stock exchanges require companies to disclose this type of information. So, I'm working right now with a number of companies in the Philippines, for example, who are starting to collect this type of information for the first time ever. Uh, simply because they need to be listed on the stock exchange. And if they don't, they won't be able to or they will be fined. So now you're also starting to see a number of regulatory pieces emerge um, that are prompting companies to do this, you know, whether or not they believe in it or, or care about these types of uh, issues. And we would hope that they do because coming full circle to your background story, we know that sustainability is very important to you and always has been. So I got to ask, um, is this career that you're doing now, is it hitting the spot completely in terms of your advocacy goals for sustainability? Do you feel like you're making enough change and doing enough good? Great question. So the main reason I got into the financial piece was not because I love finance, <laughs> although it, it, it does have its purpose, definitely is because I did see it as a way of having the largest impact. Um, while I probably day to day may enjoy, you know, planting trees or, or that kind of thing, you know, working directly with nature uh, more, I felt that, you know, 
being able to persuade uh, market actors and provide data that would inform where capital was going could really impact things at a greater scale. Um, and so I gave that example earlier about Lockheed Martin, where a simple project with them uh, resulted in them, you know, stopping to make a weapon that's, I don't know, killed how many people, you know. Um, and they're a, a huge multinational company all around the world. Um, so to me, that was, you know, pretty, pretty neat. Um, and, you know, with the work I'm doing with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, these are a number of goals articulating kind of a more sustainable future by 2030. These are general goals, but then by applying, you know, quantitative metrics around them that can be tracked and benchmarked and um, measured, uh, companies and investors now understand where they could, you know, allocate funding that's, that's more in alignment with this type of sustainable future. There's so much potential for better data and better models, um, and that's kind of where we need to go. And it's it's kind of, it's not as an exciting way versus you know different types of advocacy or direct work with nature, which is all extremely important. Um, but it, it's more of this kind of conceptual uh, way of dealing with uh, the world's global commerce structures <laughs> and just providing uh, information in a language that they understand. And sure, a lot of people don't see uh, money and corporate work as, um, you know, uh, super in alignment with their values, so to speak. But the money, you know, is about resources and it's about power. And the reason why a lot of these companies exist is because people buy their products, you know. So it's it's a very interconnected world. And um, if if I can help provide information on how these products could be better, of where, you know, uh, funding for, you know, different types of um, uh, recycling infrastructure or, uh, you know, factories with good labor laws and ethics could go, um, then we can improve lifestyles and the environment globally.